Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. More than a decade after the victory at Marathon, Greece found itself under the threat of a new menace. Commanded by the young new Emperor Xerxes I, the Persian army returned to Europe with over 200,000 men in what was the largest invasion force the world had ever seen. When diplomacy was committed by brute force and sheer numbers, the powerful Greek city-states of Athens and Sparta joined an alliance to confront their new enemy and change Western history forever. On this episode, we discuss the second invasion of Greece, the 300 Spartans, the Battle of Thermopylae, and the end of the Greco-Persian Wars. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 2 of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacies they leave behind that help shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we finish the second of our two-part discussion of the great Greco-Persian Wars, in many ways a defining moment in the history of Western civilization. Before we jump back into our discussion, however, I do have some announcements to share with you, all of which I'm very excited about. If you're listening live in June of 2014, this coming weekend, that is June 14th, I'll be giving a two-part lecture in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, as a part of Lord Nelson's Art Gallery's annual History Meets the Arts Festival. I'll be speaking at 11 a.m. on the history of the American frontier from the American Indian perspective, and I'll be giving a one-hour lecture at 3 p.m. at Gettysburg College as part of the event on the life of Gaia Sutta, the uh, feature of my latest book. Any wartimers who happen to attend, if you live in the Northeast, you'll not only have a chance to hear me, but several fine historians at History Meets the Arts. And I hope to see you. If you mention wartime in person specifically, I'll give you a free book. So that is the History Meets the Arts Festival in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on Saturday, June 14th. I hope to see you there. For more information, please visit lordnelsons.com. It's a wonderful event, and I look forward to it every year. Now, one of the great things about Season 2 of Wartime, and I hope this continues in the future, is that I've had the chance to field a lot of emails from listeners all over the world, and I greatly appreciate your questions, your comments, and your recommendations for making the program better. Now, because I've gotten so many I'd like to save one episode of Wartime just for you, just for questions. 
Again, if you're listening live in June of 2014, I'm going to do something I haven't done before, but I'm pretty excited about doing it. You can reach me a few different ways. You can reach me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer. You can reach me on the Wartime Podcast website, wartimepodcast.com. You can reach me on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com. But if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have anything of value to add to our little discussion we've been having here over the last several weeks, go ahead and send me your uh, responses at any one of those ways. It can be a question about history, it can be a comment about the episode, and of course, we'll discuss it a bit. Now, here's the kicker. If I read your comment on air, I'll be in contact with you. You'll get a free copy of any one of my books, either Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, which was released in 2013, Fort Pitt, A Frontier History, released in 2012, or Major Washington's Pittsburgh and the Mission to Fort LeBouf released in 2011. Again, if we use your comment on the air, whether it's a question, comment, or otherwise, free book on me. Now, Twitter has been a great way to make contact with a lot of you, but I really want to promote the use of our Twitter account a little more at Brady Kreitzer. So here's what I'm going to do. Call it uh, Books on Brady. Sometime between now, when you're listening to this, and July 4th, when we air the uh, question and answer episode, I'm going to take a photograph of an Amazon gift card worth, let's say, $25. It'll be scratched off. All the information will be available. The first person to use it gets a free book on me. Go on Amazon. Really, you can buy anything you want with it. But buy a history book uh, because I think that goes a long way in the process. Now, I know you can say, Brady, that's a bribe. That's a cheap one. Uh, but, you know, that's life. Uh, books on Brady, book on me. Go ahead and get your question, comments, and answers in. Check the Twitter feed regularly for that gift card. July 4th will air the question and answer episode. Again, if we use your question or comment on the air, you get any one of my books for free. And I'll be in contact with you to get your mailing information. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, that gives us about three weeks to collect questions, comments, and answers. And of course, we'll use the best. July 4th, 2014. That will be the official air date uh, of our season two wrap up question and answer program. But that being said, let's get back to the issue at hand the great Greco Persian Wars of the 5th century BCE. When we left off in the first part of this two part episode, we saw a pretty drastic event occur in Greece. We saw the Persian Empire, the largest and most powerful empire the ancient world has ever seen, growing at a rapid pace, very efficiently, very effectively, with almost no stumbling blocks. If there were any small rebellions, they were handled with extreme prejudice. That was, of course, until they ran into a strange, to them somewhat backwards group of people on the peripheral western edge of their empire. Of course, we know them as the Greeks. We talked about the Persian emperor at the time, Darius, and his general plan of consolidating his empire. Now, it fell on his forebearer, Cyrus, to really grow the Persian empire to its very amazing heights that we saw it at at the time. But Darius, for his entire tenure, as the great king of the Persian world, 
was really focusing all of his efforts on consolidating territory. That is, taking territory that is controlled in name, but maybe not in practice the way he'd like, and really shoring that up. That built them an empire that stretched all across Asia, from India to the modern Middle East. That took them into North Africa, and it even took the Persian Empire into Europe by gaining the affections of several Greek city-states already uh, by the beginning of the 5th century BCE. But like all empires throughout history, and hopefully you recall this by now, rebellions will occur. Rebellions are a natural consequence of empire. All empires face them. How they deal with them have a lot to do with how long they last and how long they survive. The rebellion we're, of course, talking about occurred in what was known at the time as Anatolia, amongst the Greek city-states situated there, known as the Ionian Greeks. Not to review too much of episode one, but we saw several of these Ionian Greeks rise up in rebellion. We saw their Athenian neighbors across the Aegean Sea offer support. And we saw Darius roll in with his mighty Persian force and suppress the rebellion. We saw the original Greek mainland finally invaded in what we described as the first invasion of Greece by Darius. And of course, we saw the now mythical Battle of Marathon in which the Athenians were able to push the Persians away. And that's where we left off. And I think it's going to set the stage for what I really consider to be one of the truly linchpin moments in the history of the Western world. So let's begin. After the Battle of Marathon, we see two things really occur. And you have to remember, these happen very slowly. These do not happen quickly. These do not happen in what we would consider to be a rapid fashion. We're talking about the better part of a decade going on between the Battle of Marathon and the Retaliation. But what you find at that point is the Persian Emperor Darius, very upset with himself and with his men for their performance at the Battle of Marathon. He's upset for a few different reasons. Most of them, though, is that he considered Marathon and the effort the Persians put forward there to be something of a half measure. That is, he has the largest and most powerful military the world has ever seen. He didn't use it, though. He only used a small fraction of it. And the Athenians defeated him, in his opinion, as a result. So as Darius returns to his capital city of Persepolis in the heart of the Persian world, he's going to develop a retaliation. He wants to punish the Greeks for what they did, and he will hold nothing back at the time. In a perfect world, he'd get his way, but of course we know that life always interferes in unique and strange ways, and political circumstances emerge. Remember the size of the Persian Empire? Well, the Greeks aren't the only rebellion going on at that time, not even close. But in many ways, there's several rebellions. And if you're the Persian emperor, you're forced to really stamp out fires, so to speak, uh, in a lot of different ways. The biggest and most troublesome rebellion that Darius is facing is going to be in Egypt. He has to deal with the Egyptian revolt before he can think of any major response to what's going on in Greece. That will take us to the year 486 BCE. 
in 486, Darius gathers his forces and heads to Egypt. Again, before he can try and take Greece, new territory, he has to keep what he has. In the process in 486, of course, life happens, and Darius will die. Now, while this may sound like a great thing for the Greeks, the reality is it's actually going to complicate a great deal for them because a new, young emperor will assume the throne and he's anxious to make a name for himself. His name is Xerxes I. Now, Xerxes is a name that will go down in the history of the Western world. Xerxes really, for all intents and purposes of the Greco-Persian Wars, is the prototypical emperor that the Greeks have to fight. But Xerxes I takes over the throne with a vengeance. He wants to show that he will be the greatest Persian emperor of all time. That means not only making a name for himself, but avenging the losses of his predecessors. He will sweep into Egypt, just as Darius was about to do, and he suppresses the rebellion with brutal force. He understands the importance of it, and he understands the message that putting down the Egyptian revolt will send. He had in his mind for the entire time the Greeks. He knew the Greeks would see what happened in Egypt. He wanted them to see it and be afraid. And he knew the mistakes that his predecessor Darius made. He would not fall into those same traps. He said, we have a big army. We have almost unlimited wealth. We're going to use it. What Xerxes was proposing in the year 486 was nothing short of a full-scale invasion of the Greek mainland. He would hold nothing back. He would compile an army that was the biggest that the ancient world had ever seen. And he was essentially setting it up so that no matter what, no matter how many people died, no matter how much blood and treasure was spent, he could not lose. Now, there's nothing easy about ratcheting up for an invasion like Xerxes had planned in 486. And he knew it would take time. He wanted to do a few different things, and he wanted to leave no stone unturned. He not only needed to plan a route of invasion, he needed to stockpile supplies, and I think very fascinatingly, he needed to uh, build his army even more. Remember, he already had the single largest army the world had ever seen, but he inserted conscript draft from border to border in his empire to bring individuals into his army. And what he compiled was nothing short of amazing. Think about the vast sweeping territory that the Persian Empire covered. Parts of Africa, parts of Europe, huge swaths of Asia. Today what we think of as India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, parts of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Iran, Iraq, the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, uh, you name it, Turkey. These were all areas that the Persian Empire controlled. And imagine all of the soldiers available from each of those very different, very uh, culturally separate places, and imagine compiling them all into one army. It was an army like the world had never seen. Uh, they had people speaking thousands of different languages, with thousands of different fighting styles. You had numerous types of weaponry and armor. 
There was no uniform of the Persian Empire. He literally asked for the very best soldiers available from each corner of his domain. And he threw them together in a hodgepodge uh, of, of an army that the world had never seen the likes of before. How big was this supposed army? Well, that's controversial. And for that, we have to go back to the sources. If you're going to study the Persian Empire, and you're especially going to study the Greco-Persian Wars, there is one name you have to know. And if you don't use him, you're missing out on a wealth of material. He's a Greek historian, not a Persian, by the name of Herodotus. Now, if you're a lover of history as I am, you'll know Herodotus as uh, generally believed to be the Western world's very first historian. But Herodotus had the privilege uh, of living around the time of the Persian Wars. He was documenting it a bit after, which leads us to some questions of how accurate his numbers are. But they're the very best information we have. The books he wrote, the histories he collected, so we'll reference them. The Greek historian Herodotus says that the army uh, that Xerxes amasses is numbered at about 2.5 million people. Think of that for a second. 2.5 million people. That is an army, even in the 19th century, even in the early 20th century, of astronomical proportions. There is absolutely, positively, no way Xerxes could have had that many people in his army. Uh, it's just not possible. So as historians, when we read Herodotus, we have to walk a fine line. We have to respect what he's giving us. We have to respect the view he has on the events that we don't. But we also have to understand he probably has some ulterior motives. Remember, in the end, not to ruin this, the Greeks will win this war. So by adding a number of 2.5 million, it's very likely Herodotus was trying to inflate Xerxes' numbers a bit to make the Greek victory seem that much more impressive. Looking at the amount of people available, the amount of soldiers he could rally together, historians and archaeologists today would agree that 2.5 million would just be impossible. But a more likely figure of 200,000 is very possible, and also very likely based on the material, the time, and the resources that Xerxes had on hand. Make no mistake, marching 200,000 people into a foreign land as an invasion makes it the single largest army that ever existed to that point in world history. So we don't want to minimize this. Uh, 2.5 million, though, a little bit unrealistic. Actually, a lot unrealistic. Now, Herodotus, we don't want to bash him too much, because on the other side, remember, Xerxes not only has the world's largest army, but he also has the world's largest navy. And the number Herodotus gives us, actually, we think, is pretty on the dot. The number he gives us for the amount of ships available to Xerxes for this invasion of Greece is 1,200. Not as impressive as 200,000 soldiers, but still the largest naval force on Earth. Now, what is Xerxes' overall plan? Well, he looks at what Darius did, and he believes Darius made a few different mistakes. Number one, he saw that Darius focused his entire military invasion of Greece, the first invasion, using his navy. 
it was a naval invasion. And Xerxes says, yes, we could do that, a naval invasion exclusively, but there are pitfalls involved. That is, there are no guarantees. Again, he's willing to spend almost anything to suppress the Greeks in 486 BCE. So what he puts together is this plan. We describe it as an amphibious invasion. He'll use his 1,200 ships to invade the eastern coast of Greece on the Aegean Sea, and he'll march his 200,000-man army on foot from Asia across a very narrow strip of water known as the Hellespont into Europe. He'll then march one by one throughout the Greek city-states, conquering them as he goes. The amphibious invasion, he believes, is the real critical key to success. It's going to be very expensive, it's going to be very slow, and very costly, but he believes in the end it will be a foolproof venture that will virtually guarantee success. Now, before his invasion begins, Xerxes will send out emissaries all throughout the Greek world. And what he's doing is going to send them one by one to the individual Greek city-states, and remember, there's several dozen of them, to ask for earth and water, to ask for capitulation. And you can imagine what these emissaries said. They said, we represent Xerxes, the great king. We have this enormous army. We have all of these resources. You stand no chance. Submit to us. Give us men to fight in our army. And in the end, you will be included in this wonderful Persian world. And many, many, many Greek city-states did actually submit at that point. Now, of all the emissaries sent throughout Greece, one of the things that Xerxes was very careful about was not to engage the Athenians or the Spartans, the two most dangerous and most powerful Greek city-states, too much in these imperial negotiations. The reason he did it was because he knew, for one, they likely wouldn't join, but he also didn't want to give away what his overall plan was. He didn't want those two powers to know his numbers and his capabilities, because he thought war, of course, was inevitable. Many, many Greek city-states will, as we say, take the bait, and they'll make what, what many historians consider to be a very reasonable decision, given the circumstances, to join alongside the Persians. But many of them don't, and that's also important for us as well. All too often when we talk about the second invasion of Greece, the Greco-Persian Wars, we view it as the Athenians and the Spartans versus this massive empire. And it really wasn't that way. That's true, but not the kind of detail we'd like for a discussion like this. For those powers that did not adhere to the Persian advances, what we very quickly saw them to was begin to gravitate toward either Athens or Sparta, depending on where they lived, in order to best confront this new enemy. Athens and Sparta were the two poles, we can say, of power in Greece. And they, like giant magnets, attracted all of these uh, lesser city-states who weren't so convinced about the advances that Xerxes was making. And this will begin to change the way things are handled in Greece in a number of very interesting ways. So now that we have a very good sense of how the Persians are preparing for the war, let's talk about the Greeks. The Athenians, to begin with them, are in a unique place. Politically, they're a democracy. And 
they are at the time a bit unstable. They had a major victory at Marathon. They feel good about that. It's really already, in just the less than 10 years since it's happened, become part of their cultural DNA, as we'll say. It's become part of their legend. But at the same time, they understand that at Marathon, they were fighting a very limited Persian force. And there's very likely to be some kind of Persian retaliation. Well, this will lead to, as always the case in Athens, a great debate amongst its people and amongst its politicians. And one politician in Greece really rises up at the time. And fortunately for them, he did. His name is Themistocles. Themistocles. And Themistocles is one of these interesting politicians who knows how to gain the system, who knows how to play one side against the other, as all great politicians do even to this day. And he prepares Athens through his own political dealings for the possibility of a major invasion from Persia. So how does he do it? Themistocles, if you were to be on the street of Athens at this time, in, say, 484 and 483 BCE, if you heard the name Themistocles, he would typically be viewed as a bit of a leftist by today's standards. His power base of support, the people who voted for him and supported him, were not the very wealthy, not even the moderately wealthy, but almost entirely of the poor lower classes of Athens. So he had that traditional base. We call him maybe a bit of a populist in that regard. But Themistocles believed all along, with the potential of another invasion coming, that the best thing the Athenians could do is make themselves into Greeks' premier naval superpower. The Spartans would always have the greatest infantry, the greatest soldiers. Everyone in Greece knew that. But the Athenians said, that doesn't mean we have to be second to anyone. He says, let's build up what the Spartans don't have. Let's build up an impressive navy. Now, this is a major point of debate for quite a while, for the same reason that increasing military spending in the 21st century is a major point of debate. The simple fact that that's going to cost you a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of public money. And how you spend public money, in a lot of ways, is the essence of how we debate in our modern age, in terms of governance and responsibility and accountability. Well, fortune will smile upon the Athenians, because in 483 BCE, in a mine at a place called Laurium, a massive seam of silver is discovered, a huge amount of silver is discovered. And it kind of puts the issue to rest in a lot of ways. It's one thing to debate spending or not when you know how much money you have, but imagine having uh, almost uh, a quarter of your entire worth just sort of fall from the sky into your lap. Imagine having that much money just discovered, found money. The mines at Lorium, as fate would have it, uh, have a huge silver strike. And now the Athenians not only have the ambition to build this great super navy, but they have the money to do it too. And Themistocles is believed to be the father of that idea. Again, he's not interested in building the biggest army in Greece. The Spartans have that. But he does want to build the biggest navy. And when Xerxes comes calling, it will be the difference maker in many, many ways. What about Sparta, though? Sparta is an interesting story. We've always said the Spartans are an insular, inward-looking people. 
they're not always uh, looking for a fight, but they're quite literally living for a fight. Uh, they are a hammer that is perpetually in search of a nail. They're in the middle of a major political change, though, in the intermediary between Marathon and the second invasion of Greece. And it comes in the form of one of their kings, a king named Demaratus. In the year 491, uh, right around the Battle of Marathon, Demaratus will actually be stripped of his kingship and replaced. He's stripped of his kingship because he lives a lifestyle that many people don't consider to be quite Spartan enough. And in previous episodes of wartime, we've discussed what that means. But what Demaratus does after this, I think, is very compelling. He has to go into exile. And he doesn't just go into exile in some other Greek city-state. Uh, he would never stand for that. Demaratus, the Spartan king, will actually go into exile all the way to one of the Persian capitals at Susa. And he becomes sort of like Xerxes' personal spy, his personal expert on hand into the Greek worldview. He'll explain to them the power that the Spartans have, the power that the Athenians have, how they fight, when they fight. And even when Xerxes will eventually invade in 481, Demaratus is going to be with him as a personal informant along the way. So what a compelling narrative that we tend to miss when we kind of break down what's going on at this time. Now, things begin to change in Greece, and they begin to change at an almost molecular level in terms of Greek image and Greek capabilities. In previous episodes, when we discussed what it meant to be Greek, one of the things we always stressed was that even though all of these Greek city-states speak a common language, live in a common way, worship common gods, and typically view the world in a very similar fashion, the Greeks would never really consider themselves one people. They were the Spartans, and the Athenians, and the Boeotians, and the Macedonians. They were all Greek, but they viewed themselves as entirely separate entities. They had alliances, they went to war, they just couldn't see how much they really had in common. Until the threat of an outside invader who makes no attempt to view the differences between them is approaching. And this is really interesting, because whenever Xerxes comes back, it really forces the Greeks to begin to look at themselves. They say, yes, Athens and Sparta, we have this long feuding history, but we're all Greek, and the people coming to invade us aren't. They're not going to treat us like we're any different. They're not going to care about our differences. And Greek city-states all across the mainland begin to really look very seriously at the idea that united we stand, divided we fall. They put aside their old differences, and they join together in what we as historians call the Hellenic League of Defense. Now here's basically how the Hellenic League of Defense works. It's going to be based around, no surprise, Athens and Sparta. Sparta has the much bigger army, the much better soldiers. They're going to lead the charge on the field of battle. Athens, of course, is going to be uh, the major naval power. And all these little tiny city-states that kind of joined with them will pull whatever resources they have as well. Again, when Xerxes invades with the Persians, he's not going to take the time to differentiate one Greek from another. He wants to eliminate them all, essentially, if they're willing to stand in his way. 
and they're wise enough to recognize that as much as they don't get along, an alliance is essential for their survival. The Athenians are ready for war. The Spartans, not so much. By the time that Xerxes really begins his invasion, and it is a huge invasion, the largest invasion force in history, you're talking about the year 480 BCE. He crosses the Hellespont from Anatolia to Europe, and they say his armies drink the rivers dry. Now, that likely didn't happen, uh, but it's a major force, and they would strip the countryside everywhere that they go. The Spartans, as the real, uh, we can say, attacking wing of this Hellenic League of Defense, need to be prepared to respond. But internal politics in Sparta are going to make that very, very difficult. It's by complete coincidence, but by the time that Xerxes invades Greece, he's actually invading at two of the most important times in all of the Spartan year. One is the Olympic Games, a great showing of manhood and competition against your neighbors, and two, much more importantly for the Spartans, is that the time of his invasion is going on during the great Carnea. The Carnea is a religious uh, ritual. It's a time period. We don't want to say it's a holiday because it's much more spiritual than that. But during the Carnea, this, this time of religious reverence in Sparta, the one thing you absolutely positively do not do, the one thing you cannot do during the Carnea is fight. And that says a lot because we know the Spartans live to fight. So the Spartans are very much in a difficult place. Uh, it's the Carnea. Religiously, they're obligated to be peaceful, at least not, not go to war. But Xerxes is coming. The Persians are making their way through Greece. And they not only have 200,000 people with them from Africa and India and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and, and Nubia and all these places that we've already talked about this season in one army. Imagine the totality of that. But he's actually picking up Greek allies along the way. And that's something that the Hellenic League of Defense, Athens, Sparta, and their allies have to contend with. They're going to be fighting fellow Greeks along with this massive foreign invading army. So what will the Spartans do? Well, this leads to the internal debate that we see. One of the kings of Sparta, a man played by Gerard Butler in the film 300, uh, very well done, of course, is named Leonidas I, or, uh, as our listeners in Europe may say, Leonidas I. Uh, Leonidas uh, will have a major decision to make. He knows it's his obligation and duty to defend his people. But he also knows that the ephors, uh, these high-ranking religious oligarchical figures of Sparta, have forbidden him from doing it. They will not release the army to go. So he takes a limited amount of men to uh, meet the approaching Persian force. Leonidas has a personal contingent of bodyguards, about 300 men strong, again, you know where this is going, that are at his disposal at any given time. Now, when he looks at stopping the Persians, or at least confronting them, he realizes he won't have the entire Spartan army, but he does have control of those people. He takes a good look at them. He looks at all of the members of his royal guard who have children. 
Because again, this is a, a society built on primogeniture, having children and passing on. He tells his men, if you have kids, you're coming with me. Your legacy is secure through your sons. If you don't, you're staying behind. He wants to limit the damage done. But Leonidas uh, will march with his 300 Spartans and, quite frankly, a few thousand other Greek allies that are often left out of the story. And he will meet Xerxes head-on at a battle we call Thermopylae. Now, we won't go into the great details of Thermopylae simply for the fact uh, that I think the other material is much more important. And quite frankly, you can find material on Thermopylae ad nauseum anywhere on the web. Watch the film 300, you'll see it. As an aside, as a historian, uh, I found 300 to be an enjoyable movie. Now, I'm not the kind of person who gets my jollies by saying this movie is not good or this movie is bad, historically speaking. I firmly believe if you really want to learn about history, read a book or, between us, listen to a podcast. But don't go to a movie to learn something. Movies are meant to be entertaining, right? They're meant to draw you in. And as much as we squabble over the minor differences or major differences between fact and fiction, as you see in the movie 300, a movie's for entertainment. So enjoy yourself. If you're interested in learning something, explore more scholarly avenues. But don't waste your time uh, quibbling over films. Because the fact of the matter is, as much as you don't want to admit it as a historian, it's going to bring a lot more people into the field uh, than ever before. So I'm not going to knock 300. It's a fine movie. But it will give you the details of the Battle of Thermopylae when you see it there. In the end, the Spartans make their great and famous stand at the Hot Gates. And they use their hoplite phalanx to fend off the Persians for days. One by one, culture by culture, soldiers by soldiers, Xerxes will pour men against the Greek hoplite phalanx situated at the Battle of Thermopylae, and they will repulse them with their superior fighting style. And of course, this goes on until a Greek ally, uh, who is, again, portrayed with some artistic license in the movie 300, named Ephialtes. Ephialtes will reveal a secret pass around the Greeks, uh, and the uh, Persians will sweep around and kill them all, including the king Leonidas on the field of battle. That's the Battle of Thermopylae. Again, you can find a lot of great resources for it. We don't want to spend too much valuable time talking about that. But that's what we see. It's one of the major battles of the Western world. Uh, it will be considered, in my opinion, a great fulcrum of the Western world because a lot of who we are uh, and how we build ourselves uh, as Europeans and Americans and folks of the Middle East and Egypt, all part of our Western culture really view the events of the 5th century BCE. At the same time that the Battle of Thermopylae is going on, the Athenians are using their great navy to fend off the Persian navy at the naval battle of Artemisium. They fend them off. They recognize that the Spartans have fallen. They themselves are taking some abuse, so they abandon the channel and they take shelter on an island called Salamis as they await uh, further instruction on how to deal with the Persian threat. We'll fast forward a bit uh, to the great finish of the Persian War, the Battle of Plataea. 
And Plataea, again, is probably much more important than any other battle that we've seen in the Greco-Persian Wars because, one, it ends the war effectively, and two, the Greeks actually win. They use their superior military tactics, their superior understanding of how to fight, where to fight, and when to fight, and they actually defeat Xerxes on the field of battle, at the Battle of Plataea. It pushes Xerxes out of Greece, he leaves, and it's where we leave the Persian Wars. Again, as a historian personally, and I hopefully have given you a sense of this by now, I believe the battles themselves are merely the results of much greater political forces. And in a very brief amount of time like we have in this podcast, I'd much rather have you understand the political circumstances that led to the battles uh, than the individual battles themselves. But Plataea is that great moment uh, that is largely left out of the great legend of the Greco-Persian Wars because of the immensity of the battle like Thermopylae at the time. So let's get to the crux of it all. The Persian War is over. What does it all mean? Why do we still care? And why are we podcasting about it some 2,400 years later? Well, here's what we all generally agree on. Before this battle, before this invasion, before Xerxes' legendary army sweeps into Greece, the Greeks themselves are divided. They're tribal, they're warring, they're insular, they're very different. But the one thing they would never say is that they were one people. It's an interesting scenario, but the pressure brought on by what I guess we could consider to be mutually assured destruction of this Persian army really forces the Greeks to work together, to bond together, and to really focus more on their similarities than their differences. The differences are often much easier to focus on. And as a result, throughout human history, we do it a lot. But after that happens, after the Persians are repulsed, the Greek world is never the same again. They're a unified culture. They begin to pool their resources. And in the interest of full disclosure, they will go to war against one another in the not-too-distant future. But it puts them on an entirely different trajectory that, of course, becomes a critical step in the larger development of the Western world. You can't study the history of the Western world without spending a tremendous amount of time on the Greeks. And many historians believe, whether it be Herodotus living around the time, or all of us today, that our world may not have been possible, at least not in the way it is now, if the Greeks had fought as individuals and certainly lost to the Persians in the 5th century BCE. Because they fought as one, because they pulled their resources, they found victory. Now, it makes for a nice story, but there's some very serious themes that can be discussed there and can be explored there. Imagine how different history would be if the Persians actually swept through and subdued all of those city-states individually. It would have major ripple effects throughout history. Could there have been no Persian Empire? Could there have been no Middle Ages? Of course, time would go on. Uh, but how different, how different would that have been? Very interesting to consider. 
Thank you for joining us. Remember, our next episode will air on July 4th, answering your questions. And we're giving away free stuff, so I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.